welcome. It is good to see everybody here today. You know, nowadays, that uh, now that we have cell phones that automatically update, nobody has an excuse for missing church because of the time change. So we all, we all know, we look at our watches, we look at our, at our phones, and we know what time it is. Hey, what a blessing it is to be together with God's family. And uh, this is just such a great, loving church family. We are in life together, and we are committed to honoring and loving the Lord. And this passage that we are going to be going through today, it is a challenging passage. And uh, I did all the obvious things in the last couple weeks, and so I saved all the hard things for this week. And, uh, but isn't that just such a cool thing that God gives us passages? And I think about uh, the Apostle Peter talking about Paul, and he just says some of the things that he writes are hard to understand. And then he says that the unstable and the untaught um, twist those things to their own destruction. And uh, I don't think that this passage, while it's very challenging for us, I don't think this was what Peter was referring to. I think Peter, when he read this passage, he knew exactly what it meant. He knew exactly how it applied. And I think when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, um, this passage like addressed things that were going on, and I don't think anybody was confused at the time about what exactly God was telling them. So some passages are just, they're challenging. Other passages, because we're in a different time and a different culture, and sometimes it's hard to go back and figure out exactly what was going on, there are things that we struggle with that are challenging. And one of the things for myself, every time I run across a passage that is difficult or challenging, you know, you pray about it, you ask God for help, And then you study diligently, you look at what it actually says, you consider everything in Scripture, and one of the things I like to do is I just start with, as I go through this passage, what do I know for sure? What are the things that I can definitely see? And and what ends up happening often is the areas that are confusing, the areas that are challenging, actually become smaller. And some of the things that you can look at the passage and say, okay, I know this for sure, and I know this for sure, and I know this for sure, then when you put those things together, it helps make sense out of some of the other things that are challenging. Hey, here's the good news as we approach these things. Um, I think God gives us passages like this um, to help us with humility. So I just think about that for myself. Man, just recognizing that I need God's help and in looking at this and and studying this passage. And one of the things I want to make sure as a person who's teaching, I don't ever want to misrepresent God's word. I don't ever want to dismiss it because of something uncomfortable. And so just that, that huge in a sense, burden and responsibility before, to stand before God and be faithful. Um, and, and that's not just true for me. That is actually true for all of us. One of the things that I love about the Bible and about Christianity is that nobody stands between you and God. You know, there are religious systems that even are classified as Christian that will say only the leaders can understand the Bible. They will tell you what it means. And that's one of the things that we know is not true, right? And Paul actually um, highlights the Bereans, and he says, even the Apostle Paul, the inspired writer uh, Paul, when he was preaching and teaching, the Bereans evaluated what they were hearing from him by Scripture. We're going to touch on why that is when we hit prophecy uh, a little bit later this morning. But the Bereans, nobody stood between them and God, not even Paul. 
And so for you, you have the Bible, and God intends that you read it. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you to guide you and to lead you to truth. And so that's awesome. We all get to study this together. Um, As I think about this, um, it, it causes us to be humble. It causes us to be careful. But it also calls us, causes us to be confident that, that we can know what God says, we can know what God expects from us, and we have a confidence in who God is. Um, in my early years of uh, being a Christian, I remember the first time I read through the Bible, I got to the book of Job. And as a kid growing, growing up, I had heard that story so many times, and, but it hit me the first time I read the book of Job, it hit me that God volunteered Job for suffering. And, and when that hit me, it like shook me. It traumatized me. I was thinking that changed my view of God. That was just something I really had to wrestle through. And I got to tell you, at this point in my life, when I read Job, I don't struggle with that. I see it. I see that it's true. But in wrestling through it, I've come to grips with all the things I've read in Scripture. And I understand God's purpose, His own glory, the way He blessed Job through Job's suffering. Um, another thing, I, I read about Um, God choosing people for salvation before the foundation of the world. And when I read that, man, that was traumatizing to me also. Like there are many things that as I've read in Scripture and as I start to think about, wait, what does the Bible actually say? It was so troubling. And one of the things that I find is that in my life, God has blessed me tremendously when I've read over things in Scripture that are troubling, and I dig into them deeply to say, first of all, am I understanding this correctly? And then secondly, am I willing to set aside my own preferences and desires and embrace what God, our Creator, has said? Or am I going to say, I intend to interpret this passage according to my own preferences and my own sense of right and wrong. And so uh, I think that that is a, these passages are a blessing. They're also a blessing because they allow us to consider unity in the body of Christ. The fact that we can look at one another and though we may have different perspectives, we realize if you have one opinion and I have a different opinion, we are not both right. Like uh, there's a lot of people who go, yeah, these are three, three valid views. And so we can each pick which view we want and we can have them. But you know, there's only one valid view. And that's the one that understands Scripture correctly. So if I disagree with you or you disagree with me, we're still brothers and sisters in Christ and we still love each other and we recognize, uh, we, we come with humility to these things, understanding that we can see things differently. But we also know that there is only one truth, there is only one thing that's right, and our prayer is that as we study and grow, like some of the things I used to think that I've come to know, I've come to understand more fully, uh, we're praying that eventually we will all see it right, and as the body of Christ, that we help each other in that way. So we're not good, you know, we, we don't just go, yeah, let's just have various views, and they're all right. No, they're not but we still love each other in the body of Christ. And so uh, let's jump into this. Um, As we get into this passage, um, it's important that we rightly understand and obey God's word, and that involves faith. Um, Faith is believing that God is real and that God is good. That's the definition that uh, Hebrews gives us of God, that we know that he's real and that we know he's good. 
And faith, uh, rightly understanding and obeying God's Word, involves love for God. Because when you love God, you will obey what He says. And also, part of your love for God is reflected in your love for others. Um, you know, I loved, uh, I think about God just as we love God because He first loved us. And that is just so amazing. One of the things we're going to be looking at here is what it means to be made in God's image. And I think about, um, I think about my kids growing up. I would look in the rearview mirror, and I would see my kids in the back of the van. And they were just so incredibly cute. But one of the reasons I loved them so much is that when I looked at them, um, I, they looked like Michelle. Like all of our kids, like even when they were little kids, like just their bodies were kind of shaped in some ways like hers. And just, just looking at a kid and seeing your spouse in that kid just makes you love that kid. And then also they were kind of looked like me in some ways too. And I really enjoyed that also. Um, so I want to just read about God's creation of men and women in his image. And uh, we're going to read that like we did last week. And I want to point something out. We're going to hit something in this passage that just says that, that God is the, or that man is the image and glory of God, and that woman is the glory of man. And so uh, I want to read this as we open this up, and then we'll come back to that later, but let me just read this. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, talks about God uh, putting Adam in the garden. It says, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying... You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Last week we talked about Satan and his, his work in temptation and the fact that Satan hasn't changed. Make God seem unreasonable when he's really not, he's good. Uh, verse 18, then the Lord said, it is not good that man be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And, and it, throughout the New Testament, when you look at the role of men and women, um, God, through the inspired writers, talks about this, that God created Adam, and then he said it's not good for Adam to be alone, and he made a helper fit for him. We live in a culture that rejects that, that rejects what God says, that defines that as demeaning and uh, like of less value. But one of the awesome things as we look at Scripture, and uh, we've covered this in the last couple weeks, but that Jesus is in submission to the Father in the same way that, um, that uh, women are to be in submission to their husbands. You know, we, we see that that is, that is the same. Jesus is not the demeaned member of the Trinity. That is not a demeaning thing. The Holy Spirit, who is infinitely more valuable than us, is our helper. It is not demeaning to be a helper. And yet we have a culture that rejects what God says about what God intends for men and women. And they, they say that that is for the good of women, but the truth is it is destructive to men. It is destructive to women anytime we throw off something that God says. And we're seeing right now in our culture the full extent of that, where we, we take a man who says, I feel like a woman, and then put them in women's sports. And, and as irrational as that is, that's easy for us to see. But as irrational as that is, it is equally irrational to try to remove what God has designed about the purpose and function 
of men and women. And so as we look at this, um, uh, God says, I'm going to make a helper fit for him in verse 18. And then uh, Adam names all the animals and notices that there's no other, there's not another match for him. So God helps him see his need for someone else like him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with with the flesh And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. (laughs) I just want to say something. God made Adam. And, okay, well, let me back up. God made dirt. And then he took dirt and he used that dirt to make Adam. And then he took Adam that he had made and he took a piece out of Adam and he made Eve. Who made Eve? Like, did Adam make Eve? No, God made Eve. And God made Eve out of the material that he made, Adam. So there is this unique thing, but God is the creator of Eve. And it just says that, um, uh, verse 22, And the rib that the Lord had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Do you you sense that? This is at last. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He just looks at Eve and says, oh my goodness, I love this. This is awesome. He's so thankful. Hey, that's how we feel every morning. Those of us who are married, when we wake up, we look at our wives and we're so glad they're there. And uh, we're so glad that God put them with us. And we just, we love that. And uh, Adam was just as excited, maybe even more excited, because at this point there was no sin. Sometimes we get sin that interrupts our relationships, right? That, that wasn't present. But it's just awesome. You know, Genesis 1.27 says, God created man. This is a summary of this that happens earlier in chapter 1. In his own image, and in the image of God, he created them male and female, And so men and women are made in God's image. And one of the things that we emphasized last week is that Satan wants you to go to the right or to the left. What he doesn't want you to do is exactly what God says. And so Satan wants you to get off to the left. And if you're a leader, God has intended that you be a leader. God wants you weak. He wants you distracted. He wants you self-absorbed. He wants you to abandon your post and to leave a a leadership vacuum. That's what Satan wants, that you will not be the spiritual leader of your home, that you will not function in the church the way that God intends, that you will not demonstrate submission by submitting and following Christ. That's what Satan wants for men. He wants you passive and out of the way. Um, What Satan wants for for women is that you would... Uh, as a follower, that you would be contentious, rebellious, fighting for control, that you would abandon what God wants for you and step into a role that God has intended for someone else. Um, Another thing that he would be happy with, uh, God would be happy with a leader, or I'm sorry, Satan would be happy with a leader that was abusive, abusive, selfish, and domineering. Um, Satan's happy with that too. That's not what God intends. And as a follower, uh, Satan would be happy if, if women were abused, sidelined, not functioning as God intends. Satan's happy for any of those options. But what God wants 
is loving, servant-hearted leadership, strong, protecting, guiding, as you set an example of faith and submission of following to Christ. Um, what God wants from women is fully using your talents and gifts, a powerful personal ministry, contributing powerfully to the well-being of your family, the church, the world, helping and supporting the leader that, is, that God has put in your life. It's like a magnifying glass to, to take the leadership qualities, the leaders that God has put in your life, and magnifying them, making them more valuable, more useful. And, that, and that's God's put us together to help one another in that way. God wants you to be effective and blessed. That's why Proverbs tells us, don't swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. God wants us to be right where he tells us to be. And uh, so let's jump into this passage, and I'm going to read it. And I will just say this, like as you read this passage, there are things that you read. Just like when I read Job, there were things that struck me as challenging. When I read Ephesians, and I looked at Ephesians chapter 1 and other places in the Bible, and I read it, and man, it was just so hard. I remember when, when Jesus' mom comes and says to him at the, at the wedding, uh, the first wedding in John, I think it's John chapter 2, where she says, hey, can, can you turn, you know, Jesus help us, we're running out of wine or whatever. And Jesus says, woman, what, what is, you know, what does this have to do, you know, what does this have to do with me? And he just calls her woman. And when you read that, sometimes that could come across disrespectful. That wasn't disrespectful. That was a, a loving, gracious, endearing term. And I would say if you could understand this passage as God intends it, it wouldn't be offensive. It wouldn't be difficult. You would, you would see it. You would love it. Uh, you would understand God's love and value of every person and just his guidance and his direction. So if you struggle with it, sometimes it's because of how it hits us. Sometimes it's because of problems in our own heart and in our own character and things that we've learned. And, and there's ways that we need to be conformed to the image of God. And we're not there yet, but reading through Scripture is part of how we do that. So let's read this passage. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So Paul's an example and the Corinthian church is embracing God's truth, the Bible, the traditions that he is delivering to them. They are holding to those things. Verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, that is a timeless truth because it is ordered in the very nature of the Trinity uh, in how that is explained. Uh, we need to function as believers. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 11:4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For a wife will not cover her head, for if a wife will not cover her head, she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head 
because of the angels. Verse 11, Nevertheless, in the Lord, the woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper, proper for a wife to pray uh, to God with her head uncovered? Verse 14, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, and if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering? Uh, verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Hey, that's a, that's a challenging passage. And everybody, it's like, I don't care what you read about this passage. The first thing that everybody says is, this is a tough passage. So uh, let's jump in here, and I want to just point out a few things. The, the first point this morning is this, that everybody should fully function within God's design. We should all fully function within God's design. Um, I was thinking about for many years, I was an associate pastor wasn't the lead pastor, I was an associate pastor, and I had just sensed this calling that, that God was moving me toward being a, a lead pastor, and actually uh, that many years before I actually did it. You know, I was thinking about my family and just realizing I would need to leave where I was, and my father was old and not a believer, and I just thought, I don't want to move away from my dad before he knows the Lord. And so I stayed and I prayed. And part of the reason I stayed at my church and stayed in the role that I was in is because I wanted to be a part and do everything possible to see my dad come to know the Lord. And God was gracious. And shortly before I came here, my dad came to know the Lord and passed away. And that was part of the freedom for me to be able to move on there. Also, I looked at my kids, and one of the things that I thought about was I'm not the lead pastor, and I kind of have a desire to do that, but I would ask myself, am I able to fully function and use my gifts? Do I go to work every day, and I'm unable to do the things that God has called me to do? Uh, I taught in a different capacity. I preached at church, but I did other things. I taught smaller groups, and I, I taught different people, and I functioned differently. And even though in some ways... We were the same. We had the same gifts. There's no value difference between me and the lead pastor. But God had put me in a role, and I fully functioned in that role. And now that's changed, and I have different responsibilities, and I, I do function differently. But I was not missing out in any way on using anything that God had given me, any abilities, I just used them in the area where, that God intended me to use them. And that's one of the things that I think is, is tragic, is that if God says, no, this is a place that we have reserved, that, that God has reserved for men, being the teaching pastor of a church, being an elder, a certain areas of leadership, leading in a family, um, that's something that God says He has reserved for men. And, and for people who are women to say, oh, that means if I can't function in that role that I'm somehow less or I can't use my gifts or the things that God has called me to do I can't do because God's given different boundaries. I don't care who you are or where you are. We all function under authority. We all, nobody serves in every role everywhere. And so for us to look at Scripture carefully and say, what has God said? Are there things that he has reserved for men? If so, only men do those things. And if that's the case, also, then what are the things that God has 
reserved for women to do. And one of the things I think is so tragic is as often women step, try to step into the things that God has reserved for men, the things that God has said that women need to do go undone. And that is tragic. And so we all need to fully function as God intends. And so let me read this verse. I want to point something out about the full functioning of everybody. Notice this in verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. So what is a man doing that is being referred to? Praying and prophesying. And now let me read on. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. What are, what's, the, what's the wife doing there? Praying and prophesying. This passage and no passages that address men and women are saying, men, go do everything, and women, go stand to the side and do nothing. No, no, nothing in Scripture says that. Um, God didn't say to me as the associate pastor, go stand in a corner and let the senior pastor do everything. No, we all fully use our gifts in the way that God directs us to use them. So let me just talk briefly about prayer prophecy, and then we're going to go back and we're going to talk about the fact that, yes, men and women are praying and prophesying, but there's something different because there's a man and because there's a woman. Um, God looks at gender. That's my next point. Let's jump into prayer and prophecy. So, first of all, I just want to say that throughout the whole Bible, nobody reads the Bible And when you read the Bible, you do see only men wrote books of the Bible. And that's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Most of the prophets in the Old Testament were men, the the, the ones who had these long-term prophesying relationships. They were men. When you look at Jesus' disciples, they were all men. Uh, You look at pastors and churches in the New Testament, they were all men. And so you see those things. But nobody reads the Bible and sees the absence of the significant, valuable, critical role of women throughout the Bible. And so when you think about uh, the Old Testament, let's just look at this. Uh, Women were not absent in their contributions. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 20 and 21, uh, Moses, uh, his sister Miriam, is called a prophet, and she leads women and prophesies. So we see Miriam doing that. There's gifted women that shared in building the tabernacle when they were, when they were explaining how to build the, ta- the tabernacle and who should do it. There were women that specifically helped build the temple. Um, in Judges chapter 4, verse 4, we see Deborah. She is a prophetess and a judge. In 2 Kings 22:14, Hulda was a prophet, a prophetess who delivered a message to King Josiah. There's no absence there. Uh, when you look at the New Testament, you have Elizabeth and Mary. They, they, they are prominent in Luke chapter 2. Um, Anna is serving in the temple. In Jesus' ministry, women were prominent. Um, yeah, o- only men were apostles, but, were, but women were involved from the very beginning and all throughout Jesus' ministry. And when Jesus dies and when he's resurrected, who's the first one to see him? Who goes and 
tells the disciples that Jesus has risen. Like that most significant event in history is first delivered on the lips of women telling the disciples who should have known, right? They should have been there. And they weren't there. The ladies were there. When you look at the New Testament in the book of Acts, you have Priscilla and Aquila. That's a man and his wife who sit down together and they instruct Apollos. Um, You have Philip's daughters, and there's four of them, and they're prophetesses in Acts chapter 21. In Romans 16, 1, you have Phoebe, who's a servant of the church. Like she is identified as this prominent person who serves the church. In verse Romans chapter 16, verse 6 through 16, Paul lists six women who are well known, he says, and who ministered alongside him. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote this. You ever hear anybody say, oh yeah, Paul was just chauvinistic? <laughs> no, no, he wasn't. Um, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, he, he asked to write to the Philippian church, and there's these two ladies, Yodia and Sintichi, and they're fighting. Like, these are strong personality women. They're in the church. They're having conflict. And Paul has to say to the pastor, go help those two ladies get along. But he says that they served with him, that their names are written in the book of life. And, and they're so prominent and so powerful that they're creating these problems that he has to call, write and resolve. There is nothing in the Bible that reduces or the, the influence and power and what God intends from men and women. And God has a perfect plan, and it's perfect even though God does intend men to be men and women to be women, and God has defined what that means. And we need to fit into the things that He has defined. God has uniquely gifted and placed each person, and we should fully exercise the gifts that God has given us, and we need to exercise those gifts in the way God has told us and in the areas that God has told us to exercise them. What is so tragic in this day, I think about Saul in the Old Testament. He was like a, um, he was a man that didn't have faith, you know, uh, and God rejects him as king because of it. So in, uh, I think it's 1 Samuel chapter, or is it first, uh, wait, let me just remember. Um, it's 1 Samuel chapter 13. Um, the apostle, or, or uh, King Saul, is waiting to make a sacrifice, and he's, as the king, is not allowed to make a sacrifice. Only the prophet can make a sacrifice. And Saul could say, well, what? I'm made in God's image. I'm really important. Uh, that's, that's a role that God says only the prophet could do. What about me? I should be able to do that. And you want to know something? God says, no, only the prophet can do that. And so Saul's looking at his army melting away. He's afraid of losing people. He's calculating outcomes. Well, if I do this, what's going to happen? If I do that, what's going to happen? Instead of just saying, what did God tell me to do? I will do that. And God told him, wait for the prophet. So what he does is he makes the sacrifice. And then Samuel walks up and says, you are foolish that you did that. And then a few chapters later, in chapter 16, um, uh, God has instructed Saul, go and wipe out this people in, in war. Kill the king, kill all the animals, destroy everything. 
And what does Saul do? <laughs> uh, Samuel walks up after this battle, and Samuel says to him, uh, so Saul, why didn't you obey God? And uh, Saul says, no, I fully obeyed God. He says he fully obeyed him. And uh, yet the king that he was supposed to kill is still standing there. And the animals that he's supposed to have killed are bleeding and making all kinds of noises. And Samuel goes, really? Well, why is the king here? Why am I hearing all this? These animals. And you want to know what Saul says? I saved the animals because I wanted to sacrifice and worship God. I disobeyed God so I could worship him. And that's the verse I led, read last week where Samuel says to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. And rebellion is like the sin of divination. Do you know how many people today read the Bible and say, no, I want to serve God. I, I want to please God. I'm going to ignore all the things that he says about um, where and how I should function. I'm going to blow that off. I'm going to ignore it. And I'm just going to do, I'm going to serve God how I've decided to serve God, even though they're disobeying. And I would just tell you, it is not serving God to disregard what he has said and define your own worship. That's wrong. And uh, when, Sam, when Saul does that, God's response is to say, you're not king anymore. I picked a new person. So um, it is important that we use our gifts fully, but that we function the way God tells us to. So when we look at this, let's just ask a question. What is praying? I just want to say something briefly about that. Uh, praying is something that we all do. It is worshipful adoration, it is thanksgiving, it is confession, it is petition, that means asking for something for yourself, and it is intercession, that's asking for something for someone else. That is something that we direct only to God, it's, it's an expression of humble dependence. We pray because we recognize we need help. That is true of every person. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, we all need to pray. We all benefit from the prayers of others. So it's an expression of humble, um, of humble dependence. It's an expression of a loving relationship. We pray because we know that God loves us and that He's good and that He hears our prayer. Um, you know, what, can I just tell you this? Um, we pray only to God. We don't pray to anybody else. Um, the Bible tells us that, that when we pray, that a member of, two members of the Trinity pray for you. Did you know that? Uh, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit intercedes for you when you don't know how you should pray. Ever think about that? You're praying for something, Lord, help me get a new job. And the Holy Spirit's like, nah, that would not be good for him. So then the Holy Spirit says, God, don't give him a new job. Um, or if, so, so the Holy Spirit, when you don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit prays for you, a member of the Trinity, praying for what you need. Job was saying, Lord, please take away my suffering. And the Holy Spirit was saying, no, Lord, let him suffer. It's going to be good for him. Uh, you ever think about that in life? Do you want to know who else prays for you? You know, the Bible tells us in multiple places that Jesus prays for us. And that when we struggle, when we sin, Jesus is praying for us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How powerful is that? 
that the Holy Spirit is praying for you, that Jesus himself is praying for you. And the reason that we pray only to God is because God is omniscient. That means he knows everything. Um, Do you know that nobody else is omniscient? Um, The Bible tells us that God is omnipresent, which means he is everywhere. When I in the United States pray, God is right there with me. When somebody else prays in China, God is right there with them. Have you ever thought about the ridiculousness of praying to anyone other than God? Uh, People are not everywhere. People are not all-knowing. The other thing about God is that God is omnipotent, which means He is all-powerful. He has the power to do something about anything you ask Him. And so we all pray because we all need to. And God hears the prayers, by the way, of men, of women, of children, of the rich and the poor, the powerful and the weak, the oppressed and people who are blessed, the happy, the sad, Jews, Gentiles. God is always there for everyone all the time. You know, when you read Scripture, there's one classification of people that God does not listen to. Did you know that? God doesn't listen to everybody. Uh, he, listens, he listens to all those people. But let me tell you who God does not listen to. Psalm 66, 18, and there and also multiple other places say, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. When you grab a hold of something sinful and you love that instead of God and you live in sin and you don't turn away and you don't repent from your sin, God doesn't hear you. And you can go through all kinds of Old Testament stories and even New Testament ones to see that worked out. You know, everybody has access to the very throne of God. Let me uh, say something about prophecy. Uh, what is prophesying? We should fully function. Well, let's talk about prophecy. Uh, the Bible tells us this, uh, Exodus 15, 20, then Miriam, the prophet, prophetess and sister of Aaron, took a tambourine with her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. It's interesting when people talk about women prophets in the Old Testament, they leave off some of what it says about the women prophets in the Old Testament in some cases. Um, So she's actually praising. Prophecy is God putting a special praise in her heart about the deliverance of uh, Israel from Egypt. You know, the Bible says this in Numbers chapter 12, and this is a time where um, this story we'll look at at some point later, um, but this is a time where Miriam and Aaron actually oppose Moses a leader that God has chosen. And as God is rebuking them, I won't get into all the details of that, but God does actually tell us something about prophecy here. He says, and he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision, and I speak with him in a dream. So prophets are people that God makes himself known to. Sometimes he speaks to them in dreams. He's going to go on in this passage and say, but Moses is unique because I speak to him face to face. So he's going to confront them for how they're messing with this leader he's chosen. But one of the things that we see is that prophecy is God making himself known in a supernatural way. We hear about false prophets in and, uh, and true prophets in Deuteronomy. And it just says in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5, it says that you might have a prophet that comes and does a wonder or a miracle and it really happens. 
and then they tell you to ignore something that God said. And he says that if you have a prophet that comes and they do a miracle and then they tell you to ignore something that God said, do not listen to that person. They do not speak for me. And there are plenty of people that we would say, oh, they're amazing and they're so wonderful, but then they encourage and tell us to do things that God has not said. Those are false prophets, even if they could do a miracle. And by the way, uh, it says that God's testing you to see whether or not you love Him. Because if you love God, you will test what you're being told by, your, by the Word, and you will be faithful to God. And so, um, people that pro- follow false prophets and they're all over the place, that's an expression of a person not loving God. And God, by the way, in Deuteronomy says, if somebody does that, kill them. So, God takes His Word seriously. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 22, um, God says, I'm gonna, I am going to raise up a prophet, and you need to listen to the prophets that I send. So, that's us. <laughs> we need to read the Bible, and we need to listen to it. And then um, God also says this, here's how you know if a prophet doesn't speak for me. There's another way. One is that they tell you to disobey Scripture, or they tell you something else. Uh, the other thing is that they say something's going to happen, and it doesn't happen. And anytime somebody says that, they are not a prophet that speaks for God. And you could look at all kinds of cults that claim to be Christians that where their leaders have made prophecies that have not taken place. And uh, what should happen is anytime a leader makes a prophecy that doesn't take place, like predicting the day that Jesus is coming back and then that day comes and goes, what I want to know is why does anybody still go to the churches of people who do that? Um, but if a person does that, they don't speak for God. And God actually says, kill that person too. Somebody who's going to say they speak for me and then deliver things that I have not told them to deliver. Um, Prophecy, we see it in Acts chapter 2, verse 8 through 14. And it just says this, uh, chapter 21, I mean. It says, on the next day we departed, came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Abigus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And so this guy goes to Paul, um, so we have Philip's daughters mentioned there, and we have this man that makes a prophecy. By the way, these pro- that prophecy is not in church. Um, this guy's coming. And, and that's the other thing is that people often will take statements about prophecy. Just because you're prophesying doesn't mean that violates what the Bible says about other issues of teaching. And so th- those things are not in conflict. But in this situation, uh, this man uh, prophesies about Paul, and he just says, uh, Paul, when you leave here, you're going to be tormented and persecuted. And, um, and everybody says, Paul, don't go. And Paul's response is to say, actually, uh, I don't mind if I'm persecuted. In fact, I'm actually willing to die. Um, And then he goes off. And when Paul was committed to going, even though there was going to be suffering, um, they just prayed for him and said, all right, the will of the Lord be done. Now, I want to just point something else out here. And that is this, that in this passage, so we all prophesy Uh, We all pray, and we'll talk about that more in the coming months about what that means or the coming weeks as we continue through 1 Corinthians. 
But I do want to point this out. You know, there is a distinction between men and women in this passage, right? Gender uh, controls how ministry is done. It says, if you're a man, don't cover your head when you pray or prophesy. If you are a woman, cover your head when you pray or prophesy. So one of the things that we see is that there is a distinction of gender in how this is worked out. And, and so there, there are challenging things in this passage, but I'll just tell you, that's not one of them. There is obviously a difference based on gender. And um, the, the reproducing the issue of, of the head coverings is very challenging. And it's challenging because it's hard for us to know actually what the culture was in Corinth. So of, of the views, some of the views are that if you uncover your head and you're a woman, then that's expressing that you're, you know, a false prophet or you're an idol worshiper or that you're a prostitute. <laughs> Except that there's not concrete evidence that that's true. Uh, when you look at pictures of statues from this time, um, you know, or close to it actually um, from, you know, a uh, hundred years before until after. Uh, this is a man with his head covered. Uh, this is a man with his head covered. Um, here we have a woman with her head covered. We have another woman with her head covered. So there's these statues of people, men and women, with their heads covered. There are some people that say um, this was not a cultural accommodation. That Paul wasn't saying to the church, men need to uncover their head. By the way, Jews cover their head when they pray. And so, uh, Paul, uh, the priests in the Old Testament covered their heads while they were serving. And so, uh, Paul, some people say, well, actually, in the culture, men covered their heads. And so, Paul's not saying be like the culture. Paul is saying in the church, you have to be different from the culture. So, even though a man in the culture could cover his head, if you're a Christian, show that distinction by not covering your head. So, as you study and look at this stuff, that's what makes it so hard. Everybody says everything. And, and there's all kinds of evidence that could go in any direction. And so, I'm here to tell you that I'm not sure I understand that part about the covering of the head and what the significance of it is. But what I do know is that there were distinctions in worship based on gender. And when you look through Scripture, um, that's clear from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Men are supposed to be men. Women are supposed to be women. Um, now, here's the reason that I don't think head coverings are for today. Is um, In verse 10, it says that women, are, when it's talking about covering the head, it says, a sign of authority on her head. And I think that the mistake that people make when they read this passage and say women should cover their head, I think they're taking a symbol of the timeless principle. And I think the timeless principle in this, in this passage is that men lead and women follow. Just those things. Same thing that you read in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, that that is what God intends. And so I think that's the timeless principle that there is a distinction between in men and women in function, and that's the timeless principle, and the head coverings was a sign of that. And so it's just like baptism. Baptism doesn't save you, but baptism points to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which saves you. Uh, communion, the, the, the bread and the cup are not the thing that remove your sin. The death of Christ removes your sin. 
And communion is a sign of that. And so for myself, as I study this passage and look at it, um, that's one of, I think that people miss the symbol from the principle that's actually being communicated. And then you just ask yourself throughout the Bible, um, you know, there's not, all, there's not instructions all through the Old and New Testament that talk about men not covering their head or women covering their head. That, that is not expressed. One of the other things I think about the New Testament, in the Old Testament, there were very specific rules about what you wore. And priests had to wear exactly what was defined. No Jew could wear a, uh, a, a shirt that was 50% polyester and 50% cotton. Not that they had polyester and cotton. But in the Old Testament, um, you were not allowed in your clothing to mix fabrics. Your clothing had to all be made from the same thing. So there's all those rules. Do you know what we see in the New Testament in that regard of what you should wear? Nothing. So if this was true, talking about head coverings, it would be the only place in the Bible that what we wear is legislated in the sense of the types of clothing that you would wear. Instead, the New Testament is full of principles, dressing modestly, not bragging with your clothes, not displaying your wealth, not, not valuing yourself based on your external appearance. So there's all these principles but there's not these legislated things. And so, that's how I view that one. Um, the next thing, it goes on in verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. And then it goes on to creation and just says that, man, that woman was made from the man and woman was made for the man. And a wife ought to have a symbol of authority. You know, I want to, uh, because of the angels. So let me just comment briefly on those things. Um, glory is to bring honor to your head. And so I, I just think about Adam. He looks at Eve. He was so excited about Eve. It was like God's final touches on creation, this amazing, wonderful thing. And her purpose was to, was to honor her head, the leader that God had given her. The purpose of the man is to honor God. It's interesting when you look at this that the man is the image and glory of God, and woman is the glory of man. Do you know why it doesn't say image and glory of man? Because women are made in God's image. Um, so, it's, so that's the emphasis of that. It's, I just think... Um, it's the whole issue of magnifying the ministry of another person, which we all do that, right? Um, you'll do that in your marriage, but you do that wherever you are. Uh, one of the things I think about for Michelle is um, uh, she's my glory in the sense that when people meet her, their, their opinion of me goes up, and they think to themselves, you know, how did he get her to marry him? There must be something good about him that I'm not seeing, you know, and, uh, and just that, that celebration and Adam being so thankful when he saw Eve. And I think that that comes into play here. And it says that, um, that it's because of the angels. So that's a challenging passage too, but let me just tell you what the Bible says about angels. The Bible says angels are watching the affairs of men. And uh, one of the things Paul says when he's challenging Timothy is he says, Timothy, you need to obey these things in the presence of God and in the presence of the elect angels. So when Paul's telling Timothy, you need to do this, he says you need to do it because God is watching and because the angels are watching. 
And I just think that this is an emphasis. There's a bunch of passages in the New Testament that talk about angels watching us and seeing God's glory. And I think Paul's just saying here, you need to be serious about honoring and obeying God and keep in mind that angels are watching. And uh, the Bible tells us that angels long to look into the issues of salvation. They're watching mankind and thinking, man, when we sinned, God threw the angels all into hell, didn't make a way of salvation. But when mankind sinned, God makes a way of salvation and He Himself goes and dies for mankind. And angels marvel that God saved us, but He didn't save them. And that's because we're made in God's image and angels are not. So the third thing that we're going to see here Um, We know that men and women are distinct, but also we value everybody's equality. Uh, Let's look at verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor of man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So when you consider this, um, we are all dependent on one another. God made us to complement each other perfectly. And when you think about just even gifts, the way God gives gifts in the body of Christ, like men and women are a perfect complement. God has given women things that are not true of men. And he's made us unique. There are contributions that women can make that men can't make. And there are contributions that men make that women don't make. And so the issue is that God has said, together I've given you everything that you need. That's the whole issue of being complementary. You know, I'm going to say by extension, that's actually gifts in the body of Christ. You know, uh, when it's talking about the body and saying that not everybody has the same gift, God's placed the body with all the gifts to work together, that together you are who you should be. And that's why the hand isn't supposed to say, well, I'm a hand, I'm of no value, I wish I was the eye. And no, you need an eye, and you need a hand, and you need ears. And it's like we need every part just as God has made it. So that is true, generally speaking, of how God has designed men and women, but it's also true of the body of Christ as a whole and of every group and every gathering. And the Bible tells us that in Galatians chapter 3, where it just says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to read the very last verse here. There's some things about head coverings, I'm sorry, hair length. And I would just say I believe that that the emphasis of the hair length is just if you're a man, you need to dress and look like a man. If you're a woman, you need to dress and look like a woman. When you look at the Old Testament, there were men that had long hair. Samson, Samuel, um, John the Baptist in the New Testament, their entire life never allowed to cut their hair. And so um, when you look at hair length, the priests, on the other hand, covered their head while serving, but had to cut their hair so that it wouldn't be long. And so I think that the point of that is just saying nobody should look at you and be confused about your gender. You need to embrace the gender that God has given you. And in the Old Testament, there's verses about men not wearing women's clothing and women not wearing men's clothing, and that is true today, Um, and it's also that is true of all the surgeries and stuff too. But I'm going to end by reading verse 16, and it just says this, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, 
we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Um, that final verse is just saying, don't be contentious. Don't fight about stuff. Embrace what God has said. My challenge and my encouragement to you, read the Bible. Yep. Just read it. I don't stand between you and God. Read it. What's it saying? And uh, if you read it and you don't like what it says, change your preferences. And this is something else I would tell you. If as we've gone over this, you think to yourself, I think Roger's way off. I don't agree at all. He has ignored this other verse. He has misinterpreted this passage over here. You want to know what you should do about that? You should love me. You should study, but you should come to me and say, hey, Roger, I don't understand. Uh, explain this to me. Uh, how does this passage fit into this? You know, we're the body of Christ. We sharpen each other. We don't just go, oh, yeah, hey, let's all get together in our group that disagrees. No, we communicate. We talk about each other. Uh, you may say to yourself, oh, Rod, you've, under, you've overlooked this and you've overlooked this. Well, actually, maybe I have, haven't. Maybe if you bring that to me, I'll explain to you how those things fit in. Or maybe you'll point something out to me that I will then go back and go, wow, I've learned something. I've grown. You want to know something? Um, I don't know everything. I'm still trying to grow and learn, but we're the body of Christ. We love each other, and we don't just separate about things. We communicate, we talk, and nobody stands between us and God. So let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and Lord, for a challenging passage, and yet, Lord, we love it. We love these things, and it makes us dig in. It makes us think. It gives us occasions to discuss. We get to talk with each other. We get to disagree in a way that is honoring to you. We get to, to wrestle and struggle and sharpen one another. And Lord, I'm just thankful that you give us the, your word and that you give us the Holy Spirit. Help us to be people that love you in your name. Amen.